0: That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at Burrow.com slash ACAST.
1: Welcome to my podcast, Second Chance. I want to announce the launch of my brand new TV channel, TV. On RaphaelRoad.tv, you'll find award-winning, high-quality documentaries about true crime and social justice. There are revealing and captivating stories about drug cartels, serial killers, and the inner workings of prisons around the world. Every month the channel will be updated with new content chosen by me. To subscribe, go to TV and enter the code Limited for an introductory discount rafaelrow.tv is also available to TV player customers with a premium subscription My guest today is a young woman who nearly died from a mental health condition that almost ravished her body At the point of no return, she found a way back She accepted help, showed her vulnerability and for the first time is sharing her story to inspire other young women and men I want you, the listener, to take something from her story of resilience and use it to strengthen your own story, whatever that is. This episode contains descriptions of sexual violence, which may be upsetting for some listeners. Courtney, you... You, you messaged me through social media and said that you wanted to to share your story to inspire others yeah. before we get into your story, where are you in the world?
2: Um, I'm currently in Sydney in australia
1: so it's um, it's nine thirty here in the UK and it's what in Sydney
2: It's eight thirty pm at night
1: <laughs> right So you're almost closing down and we're just starting to to wake up. Where does your story start?
2: Well, I guess I'll just tell you a bit about myself before, but um, I grew up in um, Sydney. I lived in actually Oxford for a couple of years when I was younger. Um,
1: Oxford as in Oxford in England? Yeah,
2: in England. Yeah. When I was younger. And I think a lot of stuff happened in my childhood. And yeah, I guess my, what I wanted to share about is my eating disorder and um, how I kind of overcame that in a sense um, and I was in and out of hospital for three years but I think there are a lot of contributing factors that led me to develop an eating disorder as well.
1: Well let's start with with your childhood if, if you're happy to talk about what happened in your childhood which was or may have been the trigger for what happened next. You mentioned that lots of things happened in your childhood that were, were uncomfortable, is that what we're talking yeah,
2: about? Yeah um, I think there are a few different things. Just in terms of like my personality traits, I think I was more susceptible to developing an eating disorder. So I had, um, I was quite a perfectionist. I was an anxious kind of child. I had very low self-esteem and a lot of self-doubt. I was abused as a child and then not by family or anything, but I also later on went through I don't know how much detail I can say or whatever, but I was also gang raped and a lot of people don't know the extent of that, but that was in my teens. So I think that both those combinations of things kind of contributed to that and my inability to deal with that and wanting to numb um, those feelings and emotions that came up with that. And then I think how I was raised as a child as well, um, by my parents. I had very loving parents and they were always super caring. And um, we were on lots of family holidays and everything. But definitely growing up, there was a need to, or well, I felt that I had to suppress a lot of my emotions, and emotions were considered as good or bad. And if you were sad, you kind of didn't talk about it. I would go and hide in my room. I just didn't feel comfortable getting upset in front of my parents. Um,
1: why Why was that? Why? It, because of the way they reacted or because they didn't? Yeah, have...
2: I think they both didn't feel comfortable expressing their emotions and a lot of things happened, I don't know, just say with my grandmother, for example, or my grandpa. If something happened in the family, we never communicated or talked about it. It was kind of just swept under the rug and everything was great and everything was fine. So there was a real discomfort, I think, in our family about showing emotion. So any kind of quote-unquote bad emotion, you were kind of, I felt like I had to kind of sweep it under the rug.
1: Let's just pick up on one or two of the things you you said. You talked about, you know, I, I don't, when you say you were abused but not by family members, are you talking physically abused or sexually abused?
2: I was sexually abused as a child and I prefer not to go into that part but it lasted over a period of time and I think that just left me feeling really confused and, I don't know, just really I developed depression as well in my teens.
1: Um, Well, thanks for sharing that, but I I don't want to press you into any details, but can you tell me how young you were at the time and whether the individual or individuals were punished for what they did to you?
2: No, they weren't punished, Um, and I was eight when it first started.
1: Is that because the authorities didn't have the evidence to prosecute or because you were too young and didn't bring the case to court?
2: I was too young and I didn't, I haven't actually really told many people. I've told my therapist and I've told a few people about it, but yeah, I kind of, I've accepted the past and I, and with other things that have happened, I'm not saying it was okay at all, but. I don't want the past to influence my future and I think it's important to kind of accept that I can't change what's happened in the past but I can choose to live in the present and I can choose how I respond to my past and I can choose to move forward or I can choose to kind of dwell on it. And I don't know, for me it's kind of like I have accepted that it's pretty much I've accepted that it's happened but I can move forward and I can do amazing things with my life. And that doesn't need to kind of define me or keep me stuck in any way, if that makes
1: sense. It does make sense. It's a shame when somebody who commits a crime like what was committed against you, they, they deserve to be put through the, the, the justice system uh, and punished right rightly. But, you know, I, I respect your decision and I think everybody else has to you also mentioned, um, and i don 't want to move away from that, but I know it 's an uncomfortable area for you to talk about, so let 's not talk about it, and as you say you 've moved on and you 're smiling, so that 's a good point. You also mentioned that you were gang raped what, what What can you tell me about that because these are two very traumatic experiences
2: so I developed eating issues and I guess an eating disorder when I was fifteen, and I became quite depressed. Yeah, a lot was going on and I think I just didn't know how to deal with my emotions. And then I ended up attempting suicide in my late teens and then when I was 17 I was at a music festival um, and I was actually drugged and then gang raped at a music festival. But And I told my friends that something had happened but I didn't tell them really the extent of what had happened so I ended up taking myself to hospital the next day and I had um, a forensic examination and I think they had the evidence there for I think they you can keep it for three months they said or something this was years ago but and then after that they kind of dispose of it but I wasn't sure who it was or I couldn't identify who the people were or anything. So.
1: So at least on this occasion you were able to report the fact but no case was brought against the individuals because of the lack of evidence again.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Shocking really. Um,
2: yeah, well I think so when I was gang raped that definitely made my eating disorder worse and my mood worse and that's what I ended up spending 3 years after that in in and out of hospitals and I was medically quite medically unwell but I think there are a few different things that contribute to getting eating disorder. So like I know my mum had anorexia when she was younger and then I think there were a lot of, she was quite critical of herself um, and her body and her image and then in high school when it kind of developed, people my age were counting calories and looking up websites and eating disorders kind of became more known. But I think... I don't know. I was also like I was also self-harming. I had struggled with my emotions. I was an anxious child. I didn't know how to really express myself and I had a lot of negative core beliefs. And when I talk about core beliefs, more like like I'm not good enough, I'm disgusting, I'm a failure. And that kind of also contributed to my depression as well. So that made me kind of stop in late high school or my activities that I really enjoy kind of things that made me me and then I kind of focused more on the eating disorder which is what I could control and kind of became my own kind of world with which helped me deal with things I think
1: and where did this self-loathing come from I mean was it what was it sort of reinforced from external forces if you like I mean people telling you maybe when you were younger that you were worthless and so you adopted this personality? Or was it more of a mental health issue? I mean, where do you think now you can reflect back? Where do you think it was coming from at the time?
2: I think no one outrightly really said it to my face, but based on people's actions, I don't want to blame anyone either. I don't. I think there were a lot of different contributing factors, but... Um, I think my understanding of myself and based on other people's actions towards me, I think, made me feel as if I was worthless or I was disgusting. And I guess, like, being subject to abuse, that made me hate my body and now I've got other stuff relating to, like, relationships and me feeling comfortable and that kind of thing as a result of that. So I think it was a combination of my own anxiety I guess I was a very anxious child and I was a perfectionist as well so if I didn't get 100% or if I didn't do my best then I felt like I wasn't good enough or if I didn't achieve this or whatever I felt like I wasn't good enough so I don't know if that's answering your question but
1: uh, yeah, it does. I mean, was that your thought process? I'm just trying to ascertain whether it was what you were thinking internally, and this is how you were processing your life, or whether you felt that the pressures from outside, whether it was your peers, your parents, or or, or just the images that you saw on television or social media, whether that was the driving force behind why you were going through such a turbulent time with, with yourself. I, I'm sure I, I as no therapist, no doctor, I, I'm sure there are experts who know the ins and outs of this, but I suspect that there will be people listening to this who may be going through a similar thing themselves. They may know people who are going through a similar things. And what is it that, that triggers this behaviour in somebody like you?
2: Um, yeah, I think it appears I wasn't ever bullied, but I think there was just a real emphasis on achievements I went to a high achieving private school in Sydney's North Shore and there was a big emphasis on you have to I felt like I think I put pressure on myself to want to be the best at something or I felt like to be noticed I had to get top in x y and z and yeah I think I put pressures on myself but I think also peers and family members and I guess social media as well. I think it all combined. There's a lot of different factors that kind of contribute to my own kind of self-loathing and self-doubt. And then my eating disorder in a way kind of kept me in this small bubble and my depression kind of enhanced that in a sense that I, I just lost interest in all my activities, in everything, and I felt like I wasn't good enough. And then that kind of sent me in a downward
1: spiral, I guess. Tell me about the eating disorder then. Uh, 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 so you're, I mean, for someone so young at the time, you were carrying quite a, you know, a heavy burden on your, yourself, especially if you were unable to share what was going through your mind and and heart at the time. Just tell me more about the eating disorder then, because that must be something that is obvious to people. When people are depressed, that can sometimes be obvious. But obviously, if you're losing weight, or you're not looking healthy, people can spot that and maybe can help you do something about it. I don't know. So tell me more about the the eating disorder, how that manifested itself, how you hid it from people, if that's what you did.
2: So I suffered from bulimia at the start. And I think when I first got it when I was 15 and engaged in that, those kind of behaviours, a lot of misperceptions that people who don't have an eating disorder don't recognise or realise is that eating disorders can literally come in all shapes and sizes and the most common one is binge eating disorder. So you don't have to look a certain way, I guess, to be unwell or physically unwell as well. And like I've known a couple of people who've been normal weights and they've passed away from their eating disorder because of medical complications. But yeah, so that was when when I was 15, I wasn't underweight. I was just engaging in overexercise and bulimic behaviours. And so I was able to kind of disguise it. But um, my friends ended up getting quite concerned, um, contacting the school counsellor who contacted my parents and then I was fortunate enough that they sent me to the GP and I was able to see a psychologist but I was extremely resistant and in denial and with bulimia I kind of hid it um, from them and I didn't really want to get better and I was in such a dark headspace. So, yeah, that kind of I was seeing a psychologist but I really didn't connect with her at all and I just didn't want to be there. So that kind of went on and off for a few years. And then during my HSC... Um, HSC? Oh, sorry. During my, like, final school year, and it's like a big kind of exam unit um, before you go off to university to study. So in year 12 is what we call it in Sydney. I My parents kind of thought everything was going okay. Like, they couldn't... I didn't have any medical complications, but I still suffered was kind of suffering in silence, Um, but they kind of said, look, you should just focus on your schooling and your final exams um, and let's just see what happens. And then so I kind of took a break from treatment and then that's when everything, I was gang raped and everything kind of went very downhill from there and I spiralled into... Anorexia and bulimia and exercise addiction, and I was put into a private facility for in and on and off for three years, and I had medical complications. I was in and out of public hospitals because they couldn't keep me in a private hospital because I was um, too medically compromised to be there. And then 2017, I was 21 at the time. In the middle of the year, that's when my body kind of gave up on me, and I, I honestly. I was so, at that point, I was extremely scared for my life. And yeah, I think in that sense, I believe I was given a second chance at life because I shouldn't have survived in ICU when I did because my whole body was completely failing. But yeah, that that whole three-year experience of being in and out of public and private institutions was very, (laughs) I feel like you could make a TV show about it just in itself because it was like a whole nother world um, and I think in some sense I think it was helpful in other ways I think it was unhelpful but at the same time I wouldn't have met or come out the other side if I hadn't have gone into treatment so I don't know.
1: It sounds like you've been through quite a few challenges for for someone so young um, each, each of the experiences that you've shared with us is is in itself a, a powerful challenge. You know, being sexually abused as a, as as a child, being gang raped, and then going through this this eating disorder that you were inflicting on yourself, um, as well as the depression. Just just for those like myself who who understand what bulimia is, but don't understand what and how it works. In somebody like yourself, just describe to me what it is you were doing or not doing, because I suppose most people who think people who suffer from anorexia just don't eat. I mean, you mentioned that that you had a normal weight, that you had an addiction to exercise. If you were breaking bulimia down, how it manifested in, in you, Courtney, how, how would you describe it? I mean, what was you doing over those years that was obviously unhealthy for yourself?
2: Yeah, so it start. It actually started off with bulimia, and then it kind of transferred into anorexia.
1: What is bulimia? How would how how is bulimia for you?
2: So in my experience, it was engaging in behaviours which was like self induced vomiting, and then over exercising, but then also binge eating as well.
1: So. So you would eat something, force yourself to vomit it up again and then binge eat?
2: Yeah, yeah. And then I'd restrict as well.
1: Restrict? What do you mean by that?
2: Restrict my food intake as well.
1: So you would almost starve yourself?
2: Yeah. it was I, The way I describe it was it was just extremely chaotic. It was like my whole mindset was just chaos. You have – because your brain kind of – once the food's out of your system, your brain kind of immediately wants more, and it, and so then you go for more, and it's just this chaotic cycle. Yeah, it's it was just the way to describe it is just chaos. But I think when it went to exercise, that was also hard as well. I think I was I'm a very I used to be quite um, a black and white kind of person, so I'd take things to extremes. And that, I guess, didn't really serve me too well. But now I've learnt to kind of figure out balance and the importance of self-care and all of that. I've learnt a lot um, after all of that, um, a lot of different skills and stuff that I can use to help me. But.
1: So you were in intensive care and you were almost on your deathbed and that in itself must have been very frightening, not just to you but all those that loved you as well, your parents and and family, and friends, but you pulled through. What was it that, apart from the obvious medical assistance that got you through, it must have required mental strength from you, some inner feeling that gave you what you described as your second chance. Talk me through that, what you felt it was.
2: So I had been medically compromised for three years, and I was in a wheelchair and majority of that time, and I was confined to the institution and there were a whole, that kind of whole setting was a bit crazy in and of itself. But when I was in ICU, it was interesting because physically I wasn't in any pain at all. So I was telling myself that I was fine, but my body started eating up itself. I was very underweight and I couldn't walk. I was collapsing. i just couldn't walk. I couldn't stand on my feet. I couldn't shower. I couldn't go to the bathroom. My kidneys were failing. My heart rate was at 23 beats per minute. They couldn't actually feed anything through my mouth or I couldn't sip um, water because I was at risk of refeeding syndrome. So they were feeding me through a tube and in, in my stomach. And I had a pick line going wherever it was going and I don't quite remember, but I remember being Lying in ICU and seeing people, because if, if it affected my brain as well, so I and memory, so I don't actually remember a lot of chunks of it because like I couldn't even string a sentence together. So I remember having to concentrate really hard in my head to try and convince the doctors that I was okay to go because all I want to do is get out of there. I remember trying to like repeat one sentence in my head so that I could say it out loud, but it didn't make sense in my mind. But anyway, I remember lying there and just seeing people cry around me and actually being quite terrified of myself and realizing like, I don't want to die. And I knew deep down somewhere inside that I had a purpose to stay on this earth. And I didn't want this for my life anymore and I didn't want to put my family through that. So I don't know. I think in that specific position when I was in ICU, I was just doing everything I could at that time with medical assistance to survive the night or whatever. But after that point, I went back to the private hospital that I'd been staying at for the months and months Years before that, and I was there for an extra four months after I came out of ICU and I was transferred there. But I made a huge commitment to put my recovery as my number one top priority, and I kind of I developed this really good um, therapeutic relationship with my psychiatrist and also my dietitian, and I kind of put all my trust and all my just everything. I was so open with her, and I said, "Look, I'll do whatever." you want me to do, just help me. And I will, I'm just going to give it all to you. And I'm just going to do it because I don't want my life like this anymore.
1: And this is the opposite to what you were feeling before. It was the complete opposite where you didn't want help. You didn't want to cooperate. And now you turn the corner and you wanted the help. You wanted to cooperate with all those who were prepared to, to save your life.
2: Yeah. And I'm just so grateful for I'm continually grateful for both my psychologist and dietitian that helped me through particularly the earlier years when I was first in the inpatient facility when I didn't want to change and I was really struggling um, because they still kind of saw that like little part of Courtney that still remained outside of the eating disorder, outside of the behaviours and outside of the chaos. They still kind of held on to that and supported me through that, and I'm so grateful to them. And then they ended up, um, I ended up shifting to a different treatment team. Then I met my psychiatrist and my new dietitian, and they were just so, so helpful, and I am just like, I think I'll always, I'll always be grateful for all of them and the nurses that really got me through and um, provided me with the support and life skills and everything that I needed
1: You talked about being in a wheelchair, being, you know, so underweight and physically incapable that you couldn't even walk. Tell me about the moment that you you were and you was able to walk out of that hospital for the first time, having been kept there and treated. You know, what did it feel like that you now found Courtney again, the Courtney that wanted to live the rest of her life?
2: So the final time, because I was in and out of the treatment facility um, and I'd be out for three weeks and I'd go downhill and then I'd go back in and it was back and forth but the final time when I really committed to my recovery I kind of put all my trust in my treatment team um, and I was very open and honest because I think the most important thing is to be open and trust them and that's the way you're there to be helped and they're trying to help you but the more that you can tell them what's going on in your head or what like what things you're struggling with, the more they can better understand and help you. So I was very honest with them. And I took six months off, I think, at the end of 2017 or middle to end of 2017. And I spent time doing a day program and I had a meal plan that I was following. So I was very strict on following that. I didn't try and attempt to incorporate Exercise into my life. I didn't try and attempt to incorporate anything else. I literally just spent six months going four days a week to a day program, and the rest of the time was sticking to my meal plan that I was given, um, seeing my psychiatrist, figuring out what my priorities were, what my values were. Reconnecting with friends was a huge one because often if people are in and out of institutions, you kind of lose contact with the outside world in a sense and you don't, your friendships can drift away. But I'm, I was very blessed with having really, really supportive friends.
1: And I suspect there's also a stigma that comes with that.
2: In, in what way?
1: Well, that you say, you know, someone who's in and out of institutions, people tend to distance themselves from those individuals in some cases because they think they're not healthy for, for them. And so that stigma of being someone who's been ill um, has psychiatric problems, psychological problems, you know, physical problems. People sometimes are drawn towards those people and want to help, but there are obviously others who who distance themselves because they don't want their problems in their own lives.
2: Yeah. So I leaned a lot with my own issues. I leaned a lot on my, like, treatment team. And I kind of – my friends who I had before – that had stuck by with like by me for years they were always messaging me even when I didn't want to reply to messages they'd always check in to see how I was going so I, so I think in that sense I was just very very lucky that they kind of stuck by me but and they weren't judgmental at all I didn't I don't think I really lost any friend I mean I became a bit distant but when I came out of hospital for the last time I really tried kind of reconnecting with my friends and developing those friendships again and as I began to become more like nourished and learned to take care of myself better I was able to go to social events and see more of them and I wasn't in hospital the whole time so I think that kind of rekindled my relationships but there was definitely a stigma I felt a lot of shame because I the times when I would be kind of out of hospital for short periods of time, I would see people, and some people didn't know that what was going on to some extent. Or they'd ask, and I—I I don't know. I felt a lot of shame because I would compare myself to others, and even though I was going through a rough time, they'd be like, "Oh, so what are you do? What have you been up to, Courtney?" And I'd be like, "Oh, like I'm just like I'm not at uni." And they're like, "Oh, so are you working?" And I was like, "Oh, no, I'm not working." And they're like, "Oh, so what are you doing then?" And I'd be like, oh, I'm just taking some time out for myself. And they'd respect that. But I think I used to kind of blame myself or I had a lot of shame that I couldn't, I felt so stuck in my eating disorder and everything that I couldn't get myself out of that. And I would compare like, oh, my friend's finished uni and now she's got a full-time job. And what am I doing with my life kind of thing? So, yeah, that I think contributed to the shame that I had around that since all of that my headspace has completely changed and I honestly don't really give a shit about what anybody else does with their life I don't really care about what they think of me or what expectations others have of me or what society puts on us I think I think age brings no limitations and I can I feel like I can achieve anything that I want to and it doesn't matter what age I am and Um, just so long as I'm content with my life and happy
1: with my life. And And that's a powerful place to be at where you don't give a shit about what people think or say that you live your life, but you did for a long time. So just tell me where you're at now in life, you know, because you you mentioned a lot of this happened back in 2017 and, and for the next couple of years after or before. Um, it 's now twenty twenty one so what is Courtney doing with herself today? you know why do you think that your story should inspire others
2: right now i am i've just i started and finished a uni degree and i 'm studying social work and I really enjoy it i 'm currently um, doing my honors thesis at the moment, which is looking at out of home care um, and how organizations can assist in fostering better connections with birth families and children but yeah I'm enjoying uni I have really found the benefit in yoga which I guess is a form of exercise but I've learned that exercise is to be enjoyed and you should find joy out of exercise rather than it be a compulsion or something you have to do or whatever so yoga for me it's not even about the exercise I have a lot of it's a, it's to do with gratitude. Um, and one of my yoga teachers actually says that yoga is a practice of the self through the self to the self. And often when I do my yoga practice, I kind of lie down at the end. You're like lying in your pose at the end. And I think of three different people in my life that I'm grateful for. And I wish them wellness and happiness. And then I've done a lot of travel as well. So I Started off doing my first backpacking trip um, around Indonesia for three months, um, which was really cool. And then I went, I would kind of finish all my assignments early and then get as much time in the space of the uni breaks I could to travel. And then i do the same thing. And then last year in March, I got back from a four and a half month trip and I went backpacking around India, Sri Lanka, Thailand, Nepal which was incredible as well. So, yeah, there's just so much in life to look forward to and I always had something in the back of my head when I was stuck in the depths of my eating disorder. I just had that feeling like, oh, like I'm destined to be like this forever, like I'm not going to be able to get out of it, like this is just me, like I'm going to be one of those people who will just, will just be stuck in institutions for the rest of life. But it's so not the case And I think anyone, no matter how long you've had it for, I think anyone can come out of that headspace and live a fulfilling life. And I don't know, enjoy meals with friends. Like, yeah, it's interesting because the thoughts and behaviors, like the behaviors are gone and the thoughts are completely decreased. And it's weird. It's even weird thinking back to that time during those three years because it all feels like a dream in a, or a nightmare i guess in a way because i feel like in the past 4 years since i've been in such a better place i've achieved and accomplished and enjoyed my life so much and so much has happened and yeah i'm just like i've learned a lot of a lot about myself like setting boundaries and trusting your gut feeling and accepting that you can't change the past but you can change or you can't change situations or you can't change people but you can choose how you can respond to them and yeah I have just like I've learned a lot of I guess life skills from my particularly from my psychiatrist um
1: do you still have therapy
2: um no so I I get along really well with both my psychiatrist and my dietitian. but the start of December last year that Frequency of times I would see them slowly over time. Like I would see them once or twice a week initially when I was coming out, and then it went back to once a month and that kind of thing. So I saw my psychiatrist end of November, and that it just became kind of more like a catch up kind of thing. And I would just tell her about how great my life is and what I'm doing at the moment, and she actually, she actually started. Bawling her eyes out, and she's she's a bit older as well. She's just like the best, but um, she's probably the wisest woman I know because she's told she's also told me a lot about her life and how she's learned from her experiences and how she can like how she applied them to her life and then with relevance to what I was going through or what kind of challenges I would um, was facing at the time. So I knew a lot about her life, but anyway, in the last appointment that I had with her, she. started bawling her eyes out and she she was like Courtney I'm so proud of you and I was like oh like that's okay and um I was kind of patting her on the back and she was like Courtney this is why I do what I do and I was and she was like I'm sorry it shouldn't be it's not supposed to be this way around like you're supposed to be crying and I'm supposed to be the one who's keeping it all together but I think that's the amazing thing about having that special trusting therapeutic connection with someone particularly in treatment because it can be really powerful and it's so important to be vulnerable and just be no one's wiser than anyone else I don't think and I think we're all continually learning and growing from each other and we're all human we all have challenges in our lives but I think it's empowering to know that you can overcome anything and everyone's going to have different life experiences but
1: And I think that's why what you have to share is important because what you've shown and what you've shared with us is that even when you go through some traumatic experiences or you face personal challenges, and lots of people are facing those challenges today under lockdown. I don't know what it's like in Sydney at the moment, but in in London, in the United Kingdom, we are still under extreme lockdown and, and conditions are very difficult for us, as they are for people all over the world. So, you know, your story for me is testimony that, you know, people can be in a very dark place, a particular point in their life. But, you know, if they think long and hard, there is there is light, as they say, at the end of the tunnel. And you found the end of the tunnel. You found that light. So just on on a finishing note, Courtney, how would you describe that? As an inspiration for, for others. So, if there are people who are listening to this who are thinking that their life is really challenging at the moment, what would your very brief message be to those people? As, and coming from someone so young as well, because you know you've been through quite a lot in such a very short space of time, and you smile as if to say. You know, yeah, but I've got the whole of my life ahead of me, which you have. And I suppose there's you do. And there are lots of people out there who are going to be in exactly the same position. And right now they might be thinking that this is my destiny. I'm destined to be suffering for the rest of my life like you did at one point. But now you're not. And you're smiling, knowing that your future is bright and, and, and opens or has lots of possibilities so what would your closing message be to other young people or even older people
2: I think my closing message would be um gosh that's a hard one <laughs> um
1: don't overthink it because sometimes it can be very simple I think yeah, if you're true. trying to give it that's the true. philosophy, I can't even say the word, but you're trying to give it the deeper thought. When simply it it is what it is. As I listen to you, you know, you're someone who's gone through, you know, both physical and mental trauma. Yet you've come out the other end. Why? Because something inside you, it sounds to me, was stronger than those forces. And that was you started to believe in yourself. You started to to want something more than what was sort of ravishing you you know there was something it wasn't even looking at the future but you didn't want to die you wanted to survive you wanted to live your life and that's what you did and it was very hard but very simple
2: yeah and I think knowing that even when I was in the depths of I guess you'd say despair looking back I would tell myself okay well I've overcome the past year or 10 years or whatever's happened to me, no matter who you are, you have gotten to where you are today and I think that's something that you can be proud of and you can realise, okay, yesterday or a year ago was shit or 10 years ago was shit, but you can cope with anything and you do have people around you who can support you, but I think within yourself you've been able to cope for however many years you've been alive so you can get through this next point and I think it's having the courage and willingness to step into discomfort or to step into the unknown yeah give it your best shot I guess
1: and your your second chance what does it mean to you what does second chance mean to you
2: it's a second chance at life really it's a second chance to kind of explore new things, try new things. I'm kind of enjoying where I'm at now, but I'm just so excited for my future. And I think I've been given a second chance to achieve anything that I really want to achieve. I know I can set my mind to anything. And I think even, I guess, over because of traveling or even like overcoming, getting out of the hospital settings and everything, I know that I can get through something and I can get past something and I can achieve things. And, I, and I've and i acknowledged that there can be times where not everything's going to work out perfectly. And sometimes um, recovery isn't like a straight line upwards. There's going to be little dips and slips along the way. But I think persisting and having that courage and willingness to keep persisting is super important. But yeah, I'm just so excited for what the future has in store for me. And I can't wait to be able to, I've always had this like deep drive, I guess, to help other people in some way. I started off in a career or in a uni degree, I think it was business or something, but I don't know. I just, I just did it because that's what was expected of me, I guess at the time. But in the end, when I came out of hospital, I was like, screw it. I just want to do what I want to do. And so I got into social work and I've always had that kind of passion to help other people um, in some way, in whatever way I can. And I think that's kind of my second chance and I hope to show um, the kindness and the care and empathy that the people in my life over the last 24 years, um, some of the people in my life have showed me. And I hope to share all the knowledge that I've been given from different people in my life, whether it's my dietician or my yoga instructor or my psychiatrist or the nurses, um, particular nurses who made my life that little bit better, I think.
1: And can I ask, are you able to now have, at the beginning of this conversation, we talked about how difficult it was for you to open up and share your thoughts and feelings with your your parents. Um, Are you able to do that now as the dynamics in that relationship changed?
2: Yeah, I so I've learned to set boundaries with them and I'm able to express how I feel and express my opinion because even with not even just parents, even with friends as well, like I never used to express my opinion and my thoughts about things. I always just didn't. But now I'm able to communicate with them better and
1: You've empowered yourself. Is, is that what you would say? You know, because yeah. there are people who kind of live in the shadows of others and, and they often suffer in silence to some degree. But it sounds like you've empowered yourself to sort of step out of the shadows and give your view when you need to stand up for yourself rather than be dictated by others. That sounds like a powerful a powerful moment.
2: Well, that's where I guess like the importance of being able to say no is and being assertive is just so key because you start – as soon as you're able to say no, you're starting to put yourself first and acknowledge that you do have a right to an opinion. And you might not necessarily agree with other people's opinions, but you can accept people for who they are and that other people might not necessarily live up to the expectations that you want them to live up to, or you might not necessarily agree with their opinion, but you do have a right to express your opinion. You can say no. And I think yeah, it's a form of self-care and it really starts to put yourself first. You can choose the helpful people who lift you up in your life and how you want to spend your time and surround yourself um, with people who lift you up rather than drag you down. And I think that's really important. So yeah, I guess being able to say no and setting boundaries and choosing who you want in your life is super important.
1: Hortney, thank you very much for sharing your story. I hope by by sharing your story, you feel better. You're still smiling, so that's a good thing, you know. So um, thank you so much for sharing your story with us, and and I can only wish you all the best for the future. And well done, you, for overcoming your trials and tribulations. And there will be plenty more. Exactly. You know, you're young. There's so much more for you to overcome, but you now have the tools and the means and the confidence and 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 the ability to say no and that will help you in the future yeah you know it will help you get through and navigate your way past some of those challenges so I can only wish you wish you all the best in those endeavors thank you thanks for listening to this podcast and please share and follow us on social media the aim is to upload a new episode with a new guest every week If you want to support, help produce or advertise on this podcast, please get in touch. If you think I should get someone on the show, drop me a direct message via Instagram, Twitter, Facebook or any other means you have to make contact. Sound recording was by Audio Avalanche. The original music was by J. Rowe Productions. The cover design work is by Studio Minerva and me, your host, Raphael Rowe.
0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mother's Day is just around the corner, and it's time to pamper the special moms in your life. In what better way than with Osea's limited-edition skincare sets featuring clean, vegan, cruelty-free products that are safe for your skin and the planet. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been making seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. This Mother's Day, Osea has two limited-edition sets, perfect for gifting or keeping for yourself. Their Golden Glow body set includes three clinically proven bestsellers for silky, smooth, glowing skin, while the Glow and Go Facial set has everything she needs to achieve spa-level results at home. They're so beautiful, you can skip the wrapping. For a limited time, you can save up to $48 on Osea's sets, plus get free shipping. That's Mother's Day made easy. Pamper the moms in your life and get 10% off your first order site-wide with code MOM at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibucom code MOM.